preach this morning and worship you together. Um, please be with us as we uh, just learn more about uh, you, Lord, life in your kingdom, and the things that teaches us today. And uh, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Today we're continuing. This is week three of our, yes, sir, right here at the front, week three of our four-week uh, Christian Ed module on reading the Bible with heart and mind. And so the overview of this class is we're asking, we're saying, I've said there's, this might be overwhelming. I hope it's not been overwhelming, but there's seven questions that can be helpful to ask of any Bible passage when you read it. What are the two questions we've considered so far? Does anybody remember if you've been here? What did this, what does this passage say? Like, what does it say? So the way I tried to help us think about that is to say, if, we, if you could put this passage in one or two sentences, uh, how would you put it? That's the first thing to do any, anytime you encounter any Bible text. And then last week, we looked at a, another question that I think we probably veered into too complicated territory, but that's hard not to do with this question. And that is, what did this passage mean? To its original audience and the main takeaway that i wanted you to have from that class is the bible is not ahistorical or anti-historical the bible comes to us in a historical situated context and so understanding the history behind when this text was written understanding like the grammar and the way the text is structured because god reveals himself in a way that we can understand just by natural reading those aid our understanding of the text. And today I'm going to try and get three of these questions in front of you. The questions three, four, and five, and I want us to briefly talk about them each and then practice, okay? Question three is, what does this passage tell us about God? Question four, what does this passage tell us about man, about ourselves? And question five, what does this passage ask of me? Or what does this passage demand of me. So that's where we're headed today. So why don't we start with question three? What does this passage tell us about God? Now, the nature of that question is important because what it's telling us and emphasizing is the fact that the main character in the Bible is not Luke. It's not Brian. It's not Ben. It's not Brooklyn. It's not me. The main character in the Bible is God, okay? God is the hero of the story. We all, we all kind of, really, we kind of think we're the heroes of our own stories. And it's just the way humans are wired. But the Bible fundamentally, welcome to the front row, is a, feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> is a story about God. The Bible is a story about God. It's about his effort to save sinners, his work in renewing the world. And so before you try to ask and answer the question of any biblical text, what does this mean for me? Before you get there, you have to ask, what is this saying about God? Or we're going to read the Bible, you know, narcissistically. <laughs> we're going to read the Bible as if it's really all about God's personal love letter to you, which I don't really like that phrase for a lot of reasons. But one is it's not really about you fundamentally. The Bible fundamentally is about God. And I think one of the reasons that we sometimes struggle to understand the Bible is because, because we're trying to unlock the message with the wrong key. We're trying to unlock the message with the wrong key. 
Many of us, I just think, just naturally believe the key to the story, again, is me. But the right key is to realize that every story is about God. Okay? So of any biblical text, a crucial question to answer is, what does this passage tell us about God? Um, and if you want to, just real quickly, one thing that helps is kind of, if you want to answer, um, I don't want to do this. The way the Bible talks about God, having the biggest kind of plot outline of the Bible in mind is helpful. And so you can plot the entire Bible really in, it's like a four-part story, okay? And here are the four parts. So the four parts of the biggest kind of plot outline of the Bible are creation. Someone summarize the, what creation is teaching. Anyone want to do that? Or y'all can do it kind of collectively together? How, do we, how does the Bible open? What does it tell us? Okay, so God, everything that isn't God didn't exist before God said, let there be X, Y, Z. Okay, so God is the author, the creator of everything. What about plot line two? What is this about? What about man? <laughs> man fell, yes. Sin. So how do we define sin? What is sin? If you're kind of reading through the plot line of the Bible, how do we think about it? I'm sorry? Yeah, we are sinners, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Okay, it's to rebel against God, to turn from God. That's right. So God made the world. He made us in his image. We have turned away from God. We have sinned. We have fallen from our original state. Redemption is really about God's work in, come on, give me that great Sunday school answer. Jesus. That's almost always the right answer. Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection. God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, to atone for our sins on the cross, to be raised from the dead and to redeem us, to bring us back to a state of peace with God, to justify us, to give us new lives, new identities. And then restoration, anybody, what, what do you think that means? What is restoration? Kingdom. Yeah, the, the final coming, the, the time when God is going to finish the work that he started in Jesus and make everything new and right and whole. And so that is the big, broad outline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And you'll notice that God is a central character in each of those four parts. So what does this text tell me about God? How do I learn about who God is, what God loves, um, what God desires, etc., from any given biblical text? Does anybody have any questions or comments about this third question to ask of any biblical text before we do some practice? Okay, then what we're going to do is I'm going to do what we did a couple weeks ago. I'm going to break you all up. I hate it when people do this to me in classes, but so I'm doing it to you. So, uh, I'm going to have you break up into like groups of four, five, six people, okay? So group up, and I'm going to give you, you know what? We're going to do three. I'm going to give you three different texts. Two of them are the same ones I gave you two weeks ago, okay? And I want you to read, someone read the passage out loud, and then I want you all to talk together. And try to come up with like a one or two sentence answer about what does this text tell me about God? Okay, so let me give you the three texts. Um, you know what? I'm not going to have all three of you do all three texts. 
this group over here, however y'all break up, you're going to do this one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. So someone's going to need a Bible to read this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So the groups on this side of the room, do that one. These groups in the middle do Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And then you guys over here, I'm going to ask you to do Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Okay, so this part of the room, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Middle, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And uh, the left side of the room, Matthew 21, 1 through 11. So break up into groups. Y'all can just split up into thirds if you want. And someone read the text and then try and come up with a one or two sentence answer. What does this text tell me about God? I'm going to give you three to five minutes. Ready, set, break. two sentences. Take about one more minute.
Okay, let's bring it back together and let's try to just think, let's hear what y'all came up with. Okay, let's start with this group. So y'all had Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, which is an Old Testament passage about God. Well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. You're supposed to tell me what it's about. So what did y'all come up with? What does this passage tell us about God? Did anybody come up with a summary, one or two sentences on this side of the room? This is what we we wrote from... uh... Deuteronomy 6, that God has a design for life. He wants us to know and follow. He cares that we love him first and completely and that our children do the same. Okay, good. God's designed a life for us that he wants us. He wants us to love him first. So that tells you something about God. That's great. Did, was that one group? All y'all were one group or were there two? Did y'all come up with a sentence or a couple sentences? The best two rules are. You don't have to say it, but y'all, y'all dialogued and discussed it. Okay. Let's go to this group, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. What did y'all come up with? What does this passage tell us about God? Uh, he, he's a creator. He is a revealing God. He manifests himself through Christ. He works with great uh, specificity, or what you're saying, because he did it through Christ and okay. his life and his death on the cross. And his goal is to restore all things to himself. Okay. So God is a revealing God, and he's made himself known through Christ specifically. That's good. With specificity. That is a hard one. Okay. So what about this crew over here? Anybody get anything from Matthew 21, a gospel passage? Uh, just some different thoughts were shared. Um, that God is, God is knowledgeable. Okay. You know, knew that a cold donkey would be in the next yes. town. And- yeah. Go get that for me because I have a, I have need of it. Good. So they did it. Yep. And I guess this one wasn't written down, but it's like also we're to follow his instruction. Yes. They went and did it. You know, and, uh, promise, uh, promises given are, are promises kept. Mm-hmm. He prophesied in ages old that he would come, and he did. He came as the prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, and then to be honored, you know, people took off their cloaks and laid down branches. And so yeah. when God is coming, Good. That's very good. Excellent. Okay, so y'all can, you're mining a lot of great stuff just from asking that question of any text. What does this text tell me about God? Whether it's the triumphal entry, whether it's one of Paul's letters, whether it's Old Testament. That's very good. So that's question three. Question four is a similar question. Same question, except you're changing who you're talking about. What does this question tell us about man? Okay, remember, you ask question three before you ask question four. We don't read the Bible as if it's primarily about us, but the Bible is for us, okay? God's the main hero. God is the main character of the story, but we do have a place. God wants us to respond to his glory, to his primacy, to his love revealed through the scripture. One way I talk about this often, if you've been around the church for a while, is that the Bible on the one hand is a window. Okay, you look through it to see God. But it's also a mirror. So as a window, it shows us God. As a mirror, it shows us self. The Bible reflects back to us who we are. Um, 
And there's two main big broad categories that the Bible tells us, teaches us about ourselves, okay? The first is that we are sinners. Um, And here's one of the things about the Bible that I've always found interesting. People are not that creative with their sin. I mean, if you, if you go back 3,000 years, 2,000 years, back to the days of the Bible, things really kind of stay the same. I mean, we sin in very similar ways that people in the Bible did. I always think about, remember when, in the ex, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and they come out of Egypt through these amazing miracles, right? God parts the Red Sea, they walk across on dry land. They're freed from their bondage to the Egyptians. And then you get to like, this is the book of Exodus, maybe chapters 14, 15, 16, and so on. What do you begin to see pretty early the Israelites doing? Complaining, nagging, grumbling, arguing with one another. Take me back to Egypt. At least there I had something other than this stinking manna to eat grumbling and complaining after they have seen what God has done for them. Things are not that different now, right? I find myself very often in my heart, instead of reflecting on God's goodness, even when I see all kinds of evidence of it in my life, grumbling, whining, being bitter. God, why didn't you do this for me? And especially when I compare myself to others. Why don't I have what that person has, God? Just like the Egyptians. That's a way in which the Bible is acting for us as a mirror. It's showing us part of our self, namely our sin. But the other thing is we see what the Holy Spirit can do in redeemed people in the Bible. This is a loud marker. Um, We see what the Holy Spirit can do with people whom he has brought back to life through Jesus. We see transformation that God can bring into the life of someone who knows him and someone who has been saved by his grace, okay? So those are two big categories. There's probably more that you could come up with, but those are two big categories that help us understand and answer that question of what does this text say about me? Okay, any questions about that that way of looking at the text? Thoughts, comments, before we do some practice. How, do, how would you say that the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration gets, gets messed up if we approach the text first with ourselves and then looking at Like, first saying, what does it say about me, and then what does it say about you? Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I just, I, I think that it's, I think it can lead us to a way of reading the Bible where we're using, the, where we're really, we're using the Bible. Maybe that's a way to put it. We're using the Bible like it's a self-help guide for me when I have troubles. And that, in my opinion, and that kind of, that can devolve even into like, oh, I'm having a crappy day. Sorry. I'm ha- sorry for saying crappy. I'm having a rough day, God. You know, tell me something. It's just, a, it's just not a helpful way to use the Bible. It's not the way the Bible was designed to be used. And it's, it's interpreting and filtering everything through the question of what are my problems first 
instead of, again, we don't want to overstate it. We do need to ask and answer, what are my problems? But first, what is what is the story of God here? Jose, you had a comment. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that's the root of, of the, the, the comment you made about what happens if we read it first for us. Like That is the root of the prosperity gospel. Yeah. That is preached to people. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, that's a good comment. Yeah. And in a sense, reading it and asking the question about what does it say about God as you go through this matrix is reading it for us, in a sense. Like, we're... We're orienting and framing our hearts and our heads. We're reading the Bible with heart and mind, but first in seeing who God is. And if, if Scripture's message is true, that is going to bring us a level of contentment, joy, satisfaction, etc. that we're not going to get when we use the Bible to try and solve our little problems and riddles in life. Yeah. Jonathan, did you have a comment? Yeah, you have two, you have two categories here coming from the mirror. I think... I think I would add a third one. All right. And, and rather than starting with, when you put sin, I don't, I don't think you're starting. Right, way. yeah. But I, I really think the starting point is that we're special. Yeah. Uh, and the starting point is that we're made in the image of God. Yeah. And then we, then we fell from that, and that's why he's redeeming us. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. I mean, even the word redemption, re Restoration re-implies at the beginning there was something in us, and there still is, by the way, something in us that is beautiful and good and right. Uh, so that's a great point. Yeah, that's another great thing to ask when we're asking this question. What is the Bible saying about me? Is How does this manifest, in a sense, the, the beauty and the glory of humanity, which has been marred and broken and kind of just made yucky by sin but not totally ruined by sin? Okay, um, what y'all want to do some practice together? Let's do some practice together this time. Okay, let's read. Let's read. Um, God, there's so many fun options here. Okay, we're gonna read John five one through seventeen. Will someone read that? That's a pretty long reading. John five one through seventeen. And we're asking, what is this passage telling us about ourselves? Any volunteers to read? Okay, Andrew, go for it. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. 
that man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And that this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Okay. A lot going on here. I'm tempted to go through all the first four questions, but let's actually let's just talk about who are some of the who are the main characters what's going on in this story who are the characters what's the setting start talking to me what do we see here just surface okay jesus is here this is a gospel narrative so jesus's life yep and there's someone who is in need of him okay what what is this man's need what did you guys hear he's an invalid so there's an obvious physical need he's a sinner okay where do you see that he's a sinner Oh, that's a pretty good directive. Okay, good Bible reading. Well done. Okay, what else? Just surface kind of reflections that you're noticing after one reading. Jesus don't like he was healed on the Sabbath. Okay, there's conflict. There's conflict in the narrative between Jesus and whom? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. So a good question to ask. We're not going to get into this right now. So who are the Pharisees? What is? Who are these people? This is asking question two. What did this passage mean? So anytime you ask that question, remember I said, get a good study Bible or go online. Actually, you know what? Don't just Google Pharisees. That's a bad idea. Um, Find some good resources, and you can learn a little bit more about the Pharisees, and that will aid your understanding of this text. Okay, any other, like, surface reflections? We've got a setting. We've got conflict, which really is a plot. We've got characters. What else? Anything else you notice that you think is really important? There was a mechanism or process of healing that he tried to do but couldn't do himself. Yeah. So that's another really important thing you can learn from asking question two. What did this mean? This pool in Bethesda was seen to have like magical powers. And if someone went into the pool, they would magically be healed, right? Which is later on, by the way, all the way in chapter, where is this? Oh, it's later in chapter five. I mean, really the whole chapter is given, is in the same context and Jesus talks about how he's the true, really, he's the one that gives life, etc. Okay, yeah, that's an important contextual piece to the setting. Okay, so what does this text tell us about man? Let's go there. What do we learn? Man is needy. Okay, needy. Good. Where do we see that? I mean, the man is an invalid. Obviously, he's needy. It also strikes me that there's all, if you imagine yourself there, verse 3, there's a multitude of invalids. Think about walking, and this is in the dead center of the city, walking into the city. I mean, think about a major city today, like our city. You go under a bridge, and there's a, a homeless encampment there. That's would have been not too far off from what this looks like. They're lame, they're blind, they're paralyzed. Yep. What else does this tell us? What do we learn about ourselves? We can be petty, legalistic. Okay, where do you see that, Ben? Ordinance that, yes, the Sabbath is holy, and yet this man was just healed. Yeah. Yeah. Very important. Like, notice the way the trans, and there's no paragraphs, so to speak, in the original language, but notice how the translation starts a new paragraph. They split verse 9 up in most translations, and the second part of verse 9 is a new paragraph. Now that day was the Sabbath. Important consideration there because that's going to really tick off the Pharisees, as Ben says. And what does that tell us about ourselves? We can take, we can be legalistic. We can take the the letter of the law and completely forget the spirit of the law. Okay, so 
this is always a good time to pause in Bible reading and think to ourselves, okay, let's, let me think about this in my own story. Because I doubt that many of us, although maybe some of us, but I doubt that many of us struggle with legalism in this exact way now. Like we're going to get mad if someone's healed on the Sabbath. But the principle I think is still true. So a good question maybe to ask yourself is, how am I, apart from Jesus and apart from God's love, like these Pharisees who are angry when they see this guy who's been paralyzed for four decades healed by Jesus? How am I like that? Okay, so let's answer. How are we like that? What comes to our minds? In what ways can we be critical of miracles, uh, legalistic? When we see God bless other people, we get angry. What does that look like? In our achievements or other people's achievements that we get upset, jealous, that we aren't them or haven't achieved what they've achieved. Mm-hmm. Yep. Could we further define what the principle is that Pharisees are using to better analogize that to today? Well, I think there's multiple principles. I think one is the Pharisees are jealous of Jesus. That's one thing. And another one is they're, they're at least the presenting issue that the Pharisees have with Jesus again and again and again is that he does these things that the law says you shouldn't do. He heals on the Sabbath, which brings up another. Does the law actually say you shouldn't do that? No. But their view of the world is God has given us this box and you can't color outside of the box. If you color outside of the box, God's angry with you. Even if coloring outside of the box means a guy who's been paralyzed for 40 years suddenly can walk. So I think there's a lot going on with the Pharisees. It's like they're, they're, they're exploiting the commands of God to yeah. obstruct God. Exploiting is a good word. That's kind of what it feels like. Yeah. That's kind of what I meant to say. You put it better than when I said they're the letter of the law against the spirit of the law. Yeah, it's exploitative. Yeah, that's a very good word. They're used to everything that they have, their, yep. their, their way of life, and they're afraid of Jesus. Because he's telling them you're wrong. Yeah, he's big time upsetting the apple cart. He's saying, your way of life, you think you've got it all together. But anytime you think you have it all together and you get super angry when a work of mercy and charity is done, that might be a sign. (laughs) (laughs) Something's wrong with your heart. How else are we like the Pharisees? We spoke about this a couple weeks ago in DNA, I feel like. But at times, I think we're so caught up with being nice being loving that we don't lovingly and tactfully call out sin when it's in the church or when it's in the mm-hmm. public square. And so we so we let things abide for the sake of love when we misunderstand what the love was supposed how it's supposed to be exercised. Yep. Well maybe I, I not to argue, I would see it the, the opposite direction where and I'm guilty of this, so I guess that's why I see it this way, where I um, judge others for the things that they're not doing, ignoring the things that they are doing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, like yeah. someone who's trying, I judge them the wrong way. Yeah, you're I being shouldn't. uncharitable. Their failures completely eliminate your, their six, their victories, so to speak, because you're being judgmental. Yep. I'm mainly referring to the social collapse of the family and, and how it's warped its way into church the last 30 to 40 years, and we haven't handled that well, and it's been Okay, one other question. Let's ask, how about the end of this text? What is, like, there's one other thing we haven't really gotten to that struck me. 
about what this says about us. Stacy. Oh, no, but I, I just thought that, I don't know if it's the original language of the saying, because, you know, usually Jesus just heals, right? Yep. But this context, he actually asked him if he wanted to be healed. It's almost like an yeah. invitation to, can I make you better? Or can, can I heal you? So what do you think that's telling us about ourselves? That we could be prideful and not mm-hmm. accept. That's interesting, yeah. You said, you said that it was a public plaza. Yes. So there was probably more than one person that was yeah. uh, sick, right? Yeah, so well, there's people place. everywhere. And remember, he says, right when before Jesus asked them that, or right after Jesus asked them that, he's like, no one will ever help me. No one will help me get into the pool. Everyone always goes in front of me. You can imagine what the word that comes to my mind is bitter. He's just bitter. He's like, I'm going to be laying at this pool. Have any of y'all seen The Chosen, by the way? There's an episode. Have you seen this episode? It's super good, man. There's a great episode of The Chosen on this where the guy's just, it shows him progressing over the 38 years. And by the end, he's just done. He's just bitter. And uh, that's the image that comes to my mind, which I think might be part of the reason why. Do you even want healing? Because the real water of life is here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a reason why uh, out of all of that, I think I think this man was looking for God. Yeah, it's interesting. Right after he's healed, he said, then Jesus finds him out of the temple. Yeah. If I'm not walking for 30 years, maybe my first reaction is, okay, I'm going to go to church. Okay, that, that might be, that's what I'm... Let me go hiking to my mother. Let me go see my family. Let me go find this, whatever. But then... That was where I was headed with like the last thing I think this, well, not the last thing, but another thing that I think this tells us about ourselves that, and it might also answer question three. What does this tell us about God? Like Jesus heals the guy, but then he tells him, he gives him a command, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man goes away and tells everyone, Jesus is the one who did this. So as a result of Jesus's work in this man's life, it seems to me something is being said in this story about well, really, even question five, what does this passage ask of me? It asks us to live with gratitude as a result of what Jesus has done for us. And I think there's something inside of us, like this is getting to this. What the Holy Spirit can do and redeem people is move them away from bitterness and into, like, he's like, I'm telling everyone, Jesus did this. And you see that all the time in Jesus' miracles, right? Yeah. Later in John, it's like, hey, listen, I don't know about your inner debates, but all I know is I once was blind. Now I can see. Yeah. That's all I know. That's all that matters. Yeah. So that says something else about what transformation looks like. When God comes and shows up and works change, that should change us. Right? Any other comments on John 5, those texts, as far as what does this passage tell us about man? That's good. That's, you know, this. But he does say, yeah, I want to be healed. I have no, I have no one to put me into the water. But actually, he doesn't say that, does he? No, that's he doesn't say that. It. It's almost like Jesus does it anyway. <laughs> yeah. I'm being a Calvinist right here. Sorry, Kathy. <laughs> Jesus heals him completely irrespective of his desire to be healed. Amen. Yeah, let's go. Okay, sorry. That was not in the notes. Okay, real quick, question five. Let's, I want to try and get through this. Is what does this passage ask of me? Which, in a sense, this question bridges questions three and four. And we even saw it a little there just in our discussion. 
God is the rightful king of everything. We are his servants. And so the Bible everywhere, because it's authoritative, makes demands on our lives. It's pushing us to obey. Now, let's not be legalistic. It's not saying obey so that God will love you. In fact, that's the exact opposite of the message of the Bible. It's God loves you, so obey. So how? And I think what we often do here is we first think of actions. What should I go do? But I think the Bible is often much more holistic than we are. Most texts in the Bible don't give you a specific action, at least like one-to-one. The Bible, I think, when we're answering this question, what does this ask of me, is interested in how we feel and in how we think, too. Think about one of the most famous parts of the whole Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have its own worries. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Okay, what is that text asking? This is very clear. What's it telling you to do? Don't worry. Okay, so do you leave the Bible reading for the morning and say, okay, Luke, don't worry, and then just go? No. It's not just telling you that. What comes right before Jesus says that? Do you remember the illustrations Jesus uses? This is Matthew 5 or 6. God takes, if God takes care, look at the lilies. Look at how beautiful they are. They're beautiful, more beautiful than Solomon on his best day. They're more beautiful than, you know, name the celebrity on his or her best day. And then look at the birds. They have food. God takes care of them. So don't be anxious. Each day has a trouble of its own. So if you read a little bit more of the context there, it's not just that the passage is asking of me not to worry. It's, telling, it's asking something positive of me, too, that is not necessarily an action. Well, how would y'all summarize it? What is it? Trust. To trust. To trust. You leave that passage and you say, this passage is telling me, I can trust God. God cares for us. He's a good father. If he cares for the birds and the flowers, he's going to care for me. That's what it's telling me about God. What it's telling me about me is I'm needy. I need care. I have all kinds of worries. So what is it demanding? That I trust God and stop worrying. Okay, Daniel? Yeah, because um, I, I always have a hard time when something just says, just don't do it. But it seems like to turn that into the positive, saying count your blessings too. Yes. Just look at all the ways God takes. So like if you are take a moment and just think about all the things God's been doing to you, you know, for you and help to shape the reality. Yep. That's a good word. Okay, there's more we could say here, but I want to practice this, okay? Question three, what does this tell us about God? Question four, what does this tell us about man? Question five, what does this passage ask of me? Let's do one more text together. Revelation. Don't freak out. <laughs> Go to Revelation 3. Uh, verse 14 through 22. I'll read this. This is the last of the comments that Jesus makes to the seven churches. Okay? So let me read this. And to the church, excuse me, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, question three. What does this tell us about God? Let's start there. What do you see? That God doesn't like lukewarm. What is lukewarm? Neither hot nor cold, yeah. Uh, tap water, right? Okay, God is, he doesn't seem to be a fan of that. What else? Question three, what does this tell you about God? He says, I know your words. So what does that tell you about God? Okay, that God is aware of what you're doing. <laughs> you're not hiding. There is no place to hide. Yep. Anything else? Okay, where do you see that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that image, I stand at the door and knock, is one of the most like provocative ways I can imagine Jesus. Um, yeah, he offered, he's offering himself. He's offering redemption. He's offering fellowship. I will eat with him and he will eat with me. Yep. Okay, is that question, so you're kind of getting into question four. How are our priorities messed up? Okay, Go ahead. No, that's fine. I was about to move us there anyway. Okay. Um, the, the focus is not on God. It's on everything around us that we can get so that we can better ourselves or look better. Yeah. Good. And what specifically does he condemn the Laodiceans for being focused on? Wealth. Wealth. Money. You're rich. You say, I am rich, therefore I'm good. Speaking of don't be anxious, you know, instead of going to Jesus when we feel anxious, we go to money. I've prospered. I don't need anything. And you don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay, what else does this tell us about us? God's offering restoration, hope, cleansing, forgiveness. Yeah, for sure, that's there. Any other things y'all see about what this says about us? That we have to move because it says to yeah. him who overcomes, so we have to be the ones to yep. first move. Yeah, there is an activity on our end mm-hmm. that is required from Jesus. That is uh, to open the door when he knocks, to listen to his voice when he speaks to let him come in, to, there's a conquering language here. Yeah, and that, that definitely is there, no question about it. Okay, how about question five? What does this passage demand of me or ask of me? And don't just be, let, let's think holistically. What is this asking me to think, feel, 
do. Okay. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Zealous. Yeah, that's a good connection with hot. I like that. Any other thoughts? I think it's also demanding that we not think that just because we have a few extra zeros at the end of our bank account, we're safe and good to go. Like... It's telling us also not to trust in certain things that are easy for us to trust in. And for most people throughout the history of the world, remember, sin is not, there's nothing new under the sun. It's money. It's just, that's what it is. And so I think that's something he's demanding of us. Yeah. Okay, so those are a couple of ways to work through these questions. What does this passage tell me about God? What does this passage tell me about man? What does this passage ask of me? Um, after you've asked, what is this saying? You know, what is going on here? Kind of feel your way through the text, do a little work on what does this mean, especially in like the John 5, when there's something there, like who's a Pharisee? Why, is, why are people trying to get into this pool? Like you can get that in any good study Bible. Then you start getting into this stuff, which is reading the Bible with heart and mind, okay? So next time we're gonna finish and we're gonna ask the last two questions. How is this passage about Jesus? And how does this passage prompt me towards prayer and communion with God? Okay, so I hope to see you all back next time. Let me pray and we'll finish. Thank you, God, for your grace to us today, the opportunity to study your word and just consider how you so um, amazingly, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, teach us from your word, how there's so many insights and little nooks and crannies of any given text that we can mine for life and hope and help. And God, we pray that you would make us good, faithful disciples of yours as we read the Bible and encounter you in your word. Will you enable us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to uh, read the Bible thoughtfully and to read it with open hearts? May we not be lukewarm, uh, but zealous to obey you, to know you, to experience your kindness and your grace, and also your loving fatherly discipline sometimes, as this Revelation text teaches As we go to worship now, will you be with us? Come and meet with us and give to us again all that we need. You are the source of life, and apart from you, we have nothing. So, God, we want you to make yourself known today and experience your love. So do that for us, please. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you all.